That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from one mile away. So I know what happens when the experts get it wrong. Exciting news today that a documentary about Fukushima, shot on the ground in the first six months after that nuclear disaster began, will be launching in special presentations around the country this March 11. Listen to Nuclear Hot Seat's interview with producer-director Christopher Nolan, and then learn how you can not only view, but book a screening of this important, groundbreaking film. That story will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, February 26, 2013, and here is the week's nuclear news. Frightening information out of the Middle East? Syrian rebels have captured the site of a suspected nuclear reactor near the Euphrates River. This is the site that Israeli warplanes destroyed six years ago. The United States said the complex was a North Korean-designed nuclear reactor geared to making weapons-grade plutonium. In messages posted online, the Syrian rebel sources described the site as a nuclear research facility. Oi. In Germany... Some 126,000 barrels of nuclear waste have been dumped in the Esse salt mine near the northern German town of Rumlingen over the last 50 years. German politicians are pushing for a law promising their removal, but the safety, technical, and financial hurdles are enormous, and experts warn that removal is far more dangerous than leaving them put. There are 13 chambers filled with barrels of waste in the 100-year-old maze of tunnels in the salt mine. Germany's Federal Office for Radiation Protection, the BFS, still has no detailed concept for the retrieval, no timetable, no script that maps out the technical procedures. It's essentially a flight by the seat of the pants, and problems are encountered for which no solutions have been found anywhere in the world. Note that at least Germany is trying to find a solution to nuclear waste. Where is the U.S. in this? Where is Japan? According to Jens Kohler, the technical director of ESSA, what we intend to do here has never been done before. Here's hoping you can do it, and then you teach the rest of us how. According to the Asia-Europe Journal, an academic journal, the Fukushima catastrophe is a turning point in the conception, role, and management of technology in industrial societies. Its long-term impact and meaning are impossible to repress, Wherever they live, people will never see and understand nuclear energy and the nuclear industry as they did before. Which, of course, Nuclear Hot Seat adds, is not stopping the nuclear industry from busting out its talking points and flogging its trained seals in the media to support more nukes. I'll have more about that later in the podcast. Here in the United States... It's now up to six underground radioactive waste tanks that are leaking at the nation's most contaminated nuclear site, the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. Washington Governor Jay Inslee said this past Friday, in a massive understatement, that the latest news was disturbing. 
A more powerful response came from CBS News contributor Michio Kaku, who is also a physics professor at the City University of New York. He said, it is scandalous. We're leaking nuclear waste dating all the way back to the Nagasaki bomb. It's a toxic witch's brew of chemicals, the most dangerous known to science, like plutonium, enriched uranium, nitric acid, and solvents. We have 56 million gallons worth of this toxic stuff. Imagine 80 Olympic-sized swimming pools containing the most toxic substance known to science, of which two Olympic-sized swimming pools have leaked right into the ground. Kaku went on, We have to immediately realize that this is a major emergency problem. The government has to take the waste, put it into new vats that are double, triple lined. They have to drill to access how far the waste is. And it's a ticking time bomb. In 15 or 50 years, we don't know when, it's going to hit the ground table. When it hits the ground table, it will go right into the Columbia River. And remember, that's one of the major rivers in the entire Pacific Northwest. Two thoughts on this. Drinking water and salmon. More on the ever-popular, ever-more-contentious and convoluted story and battle around the San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station in Southern California. On February 21st, Representative Ed Markey raised the possibility that the utility in charge of San Onofre, Southern California Edison, may have violated federal securities laws by failing to publicly report safety information to investors. This is a new angle. According to a letter sent by Representative Markey to the Securities and Exchange Commission head, Elise Walter, the lawmaker says investors do not appear to have been fully and accurately informed of design flaws found by SCE and Mitsubishi in advance of the replacement of parts of the plant. He went on to state that Southern California Edison decided to reject recommended safety modifications for fear that they would be required to undertake a new license process before the parts could be installed. The plant's two nuclear reactors have been shuttered since January 31st of 2012 because of unusual amounts of wear found in tubes in the replaced steam generators. These flawed and failing steam generators leaked radioactive water, which is what alerted the NRC and the rest of the world to the fact that there was a problem, Houston. Representative Markey also asked the SCE what the penalties would be for violations of this law and whether other enforcement actions have been taken against energy companies for failing to disclose under similar facts and circumstances. Another U.S. nuclear worker has been found dead, which makes it the third death at a nuclear plant this month alone. At Brunswick in North Carolina, on February 16, a contract employee slumped over on a forklift inside the protected area. The cause of death has not yet been determined. On February 19, a man working at the Perry Nuclear Power Plant near Cleveland died while on the job. According to a spokesman for First Energy, the medical incident occurred inside the plant. The man was pronounced dead at the hospital. The company said tests at the hospital verified that this person involved in the incident was not contaminated. Always good to know. On the 7th of February, an individual was reported to have collapsed and was lying unconscious outside of the protected area at the Cook Nuclear Plant in Michigan on the southeastern edge of Lake Michigan. He was pronounced dead shortly thereafter. Also at the Cook Nuclear Plant, 
On February 12, bones were discovered in the debris removal baskets in the screenhouse, and these bones have the potential to be human remains. We always knew it was a killer industry. This from our friends at Beyond Nuclear. It's an update on Entergy Nuclear's dirty dozen atomic reactors. As Reuters reports, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC, has increased oversight and inspection at Entergy's Fitzpatrick facility in upstate New York. This nuclear reactor is a twin to the Fukushima Daiichi reactor that melted down in Japan. It's a GE Mark I. The NRC degraded the safety status of this nuclear facility because of the number of unplanned power changes per 7,000 hours of operation. According to a new report commissioned by Entergy, in case of a radiological disaster at Indian Point, it would take 5 hours and 25 minutes to evacuate 90% of the residents living within a 10-mile emergency planning zone radius surrounding Indian Point's twin reactors. Note that they're only considering a 10-mile emergency planning zone where the recommended evacuation from Fukushima was 50 miles. Representative Nita Lowey, who represents the area, panned the overall plan during a visit to the plant with NRC Chairwoman Allison McFarlane. Lowey said, It's clear that in the case of an emergency, a safe, speedy evacuation of the surrounding area would be nearly impossible. Entergy's Palisades nuclear plant in Michigan qualifies for the numbnuts of the week. Their latest leak per week, which has yet again shut the reactor down, involves the safety-significant component cooling system. Apparently, the leak had been going on for at least 11 days before NRC or Entergy got around to informing the public. But this is nothing new. Entergy and the NRC kept the public, including the NRC's then-chairman, Gregory Yasko, during his tour of the Palisades, in the dark about a leak about the safety-critical control room, which is full of electrical circuitry and equipment, which must remain dry at all times. There's a lot more on the wacka-wacka goings-on at Entergy's nuclear plants, We will have a link to the report from Beyond Nuclear on our website, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. Lest we forget that the big climate change rally in Washington, D.C. happened only nine days ago, here's a brief interview with Diane DeRigo of NIRS, the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, done on site at the rally by Nuclear Hot Seat Special Correspondent Lauren Steiner. I'm Diane DeRigo. I've been fighting nuclear power for as long as I can remember, and it's part of the fight against climate change. And I live here in D.C. I work at Nuclear Information and Resource Service. Tell me uh, more about your organization. Uh, We were founded in 78, 79, and we've been fighting nuclear power, nuclear waste, radiation issues, working for safe, clean, sustainable energy. Are you worried now that a lot of people may throw nuclear under the bus and try to imply that it's clean energy because it uh, doesn't spew fossil fuels when it... uh, Well, it gives off radioactive carbon. I think people need to know that. And uh, nuclear power is going to steal all the energy dollars that we need from from solar and wind and the other renewables, conservation efficiency. So we need to move straight to those and not waste our time and money on uh, nuclear, which is very dangerous and harmful to 
especially uh, women and children, the radiation is even more dangerous. And it's not carbon free because of the mining of uranium and That's the transporting right. and the building of the waste, uh, the plants, and then the disposal. There's carbon generated all along the fuel chain. It takes major amounts of carbon to transport, to uh, refine the uranium that's in the ground, and all along the way it creates radioactive waste. So the best thing we can do is beg, go carbon-free, go nuclear-free, and go to sustainable energy now. That was Diane DeRigo from Nuclear Information and Resource Services being interviewed by Nuclear Hot Seat Special Correspondent Lauren Steiner at the Climate Change Rally in Washington, D.C. a week and a half ago. Now for the week's interview. Have you ever been to a big Hollywood premiere? Well, we all have our chance to get out on the red carpet and support one of our own. Christopher Nolan's new film, 311 Surviving Japan, is a harrowing yet quirky look at the first months after the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster began. From shock at the devastation, to terror at the uncontrolled meltdown of three nuclear reactors, to the daily burdens borne by the people whose lives were ripped apart by the ongoing disasters, to a 50,000-person mass rally against nuclear in Tokyo only six months later. Director-producer Christopher Noland was part of the relief operation and carried his little video camera with him at all times. Hear how he was led to create a film in this Nuclear Hot Seat interview from July of 2012. Afterwards, I'll let you know where you, yes you, can attend a red carpet premiere of the film on March 11, 2013. Christopher Nolan is a filmmaker and the director-producer of 311 Surviving Japan, a full-length documentary on the nuclear aftermath of the Tohoku earthquake and the beginnings of the Japanese people's resistance to their country's nuclear policy. Chris, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. You were living in Japan when the earthquake happened. What was that like and what was your response after that? Initially, after the earthquake happened, my response was to pretty much stay in the apartment and stay safe. The next day, of course, when the nuclear power plant exploded and everything, I actually left. My parents bought me a plane ticket to come back to America. And when I got back, my mom said to me, you're in my kitchen physically, but mentally you're not really here. And I knew at that point I was still in the disaster, and I went back because I felt that I should go help the people. How long after you had come back to the States did you actually go back to Japan? I was just back for one week. Very brave of you. So you said you went back to help people. What sort of help were you providing? At first I was just providing um, relief supplies, and then I went actually up to the affected area. You went up to the Fukushima area? Uh, I didn't go to the Fukushima area first. I went up to the Iwate Prefecture to a town called Ofunado, did a lot of debris cleaning, started to hear a lot of problems with the relief operations going on from the government, and that kind of led me on a path to investigate what was going on. What sort of problems were you hearing about? Food shortages and just systematic problems with getting food around logistically and people were starving was the main thing. Nobody was getting any information about the nuclear power situation at all, Um, especially up north. They considered it just to be a problem down south. They didn't think it affected them at all. So there was no information about radiation plume or the ongoing series of explosions and problems that were showing up at Fukushima? 
Now, on television, they told us that there was an accident, and then they reverted to how the power plant worked before that, but they did not tell us how it would affect us health-wise at all. How suspicious were the Japanese people you were in contact with about this kind of information coming from the government? At first, they didn't seem very concerned about it. But as time went on, people got a lot more concerned. How did this turn into a film? After I spent time up north, I, of course, wanted to know, you know, living there, what was going on with the radiation, how the extent and everything. The mayor of Minami Selman went onto YouTube. The government had told everyone to stay indoors, so no supplies, nothing was being delivered. And this was how long after the tsunami had taken place? That was right after the, the nuclear accident that they were given that order. So he actually had to go into YouTube to get help because the mass media wasn't really reporting anything. After that, of course, the government showed up. People got supplies and everything. Um, when I saw the clip on YouTube, though, I was like, I've got to, I just felt that I had to meet him. And in meeting him, what was that like, and how did that lead to you wanting to do a documentary? My first sense from the YouTube video that he was very kind of a little bit more going rogue, I guess. But when I got there, it seemed like he kind of slipped back into like the official, you know, follow the government's orders type of thing and wanted people to come back to the town. And that made me want to, of course, know more. And basically, we were accompanied by a journalist from Estonia and we went to Tokyo Electric Power. And when we interviewed Tokyo Electric Power... You actually got through to TEPCO in the weeks after Fukushima? Yeah, um, it was actually in May that we got to the TEPCO corporate office, and we were there for about an hour and 15 minutes, and um, they had their prepped interview, you know, of stuff that they wanted to tell us, and then the journalists let me loose on them, and I asked them all kinds of questions they were not ready for, but the amazing thing was they still answered them. They didn't say no comment or anything, and I captured it all on film, and when I got that on film, I said, this is something that people need to know about. And from that point on, it just led me into making this film. Now, you speak some Japanese, do you not? A little, yes. And when you were asking the questions, were you doing so directly, or did you have to go through interpreters? It depended on who it was. Tapco spoke English. But, like, the mayor, we had to use interpreter. Yeah, it really depended on where you were. So my movie's kind of mixed in English and Japanese because of that. What are some of the standout moments that you experienced in these the first few months after Fukushima happened when you're wandering around with, what, a little digital camera? Yeah, I just had a regular consumer camera. What stood out to me was the lady that was denied food and shelter because she was actually from another community, and they told her the shelter was full. So because she didn't register at the shelter, she also couldn't get the government assistance in food. So she was on her own for a good two and a half months. She wasn't even in a shelter. She was in the back of trucks. What really, really got to me was her openness about it and willing to actually get angry about it because it's very uncharacteristic for Japanese people to do that. How open were the Japanese officials that you faced to talking about the nuclear aspect of the disaster you were facing? The officials that we interviewed in Miyagi Prefecture did not want to talk about the radiation at all. They said that it was baseless, harmful rumors, and everything was fine. That's almost a direct quote from them. And what was your knowledge or awareness of this at the time? At the time, I really didn't have a lot of concrete knowledge because I had the Western media saying a lot of things. I had the Japanese media saying nothing. 
we had the government in TEPCO telling us everything was fine, so really wasn't sure, but I, I knew that there was there was something wrong. And what, if any, protective measures did you take for yourself and your health from the radiation during this time? At the time, we were not really given much instructions on what precautions that we could take, so I didn't really take any. Go in commando in Fukushima. Not a good idea, but Chris, you're still here, and we hope you're here for a good long time. So officials didn't want to speak about the issue. Where did you go for your next sets of information? After I talked to the officials in TEPCO, I went back to talking to the people. Because I wanted to see how the people felt after a few months. And the people basically were pissed. They said basically the same thing. They were not getting, you couldn't trust the information from anybody. And they didn't know what to believe. But they didn't know what to do about it. So a lot of people started to kind of start to speak out about it. How common is this in the Japanese culture? Not common at all. You're not supposed to stand up or speak against anything. They have a saying that um, the nail on the floor is the one that gets hammered down. So you're not supposed to cause a commotion. Don't stick your head up. Right. So here are these people getting pissed off, to use your language, and sticking their heads up. What was it that you were hearing from them? They were very angry with the government and their lack of releasing information to them. That was the chief complaint from everybody. Where did that lead you in this uh, inadvertent adventure to create a movie? I was tandemly volunteering while I was making the film. So I would go back and forth from Tokyo, and I'd spend a couple weeks up there. Then I'd come back maybe for about a week and then go back, and I was simultaneously interviewing people while doing the volunteer work. So you just kept the camera in your hip pocket, and when somebody had something interesting to say, you whipped it out and took an interview? I asked if they wanted to do it first. I found it took a long time for people to get to their true feeling about something. So sometimes the interview would be like an hour, but the good part would always be at the end. So I I kind of learned quickly that I had to kind of hang on and wait and kind of wade through a lot of things. But what they were really, you know, wanted to say was, was usually at the end. So you were interviewing people who you were working with as volunteers. There was already a level of trust there because you were part of the community. You knew a little bit of Japanese. At what point did you stop doing that work and concentrate perhaps fully on the documentary as opposed to doing the volunteer work? I was volunteering with a group called Peace Boat in Ishinomaki, and I injured my back and actually my foot also. So I decided that I would focus a little bit more on the movie because I thought that was probably the most important thing that I could do as a volunteer. I started just driving instead. Driving supplies. Tell me about your experience at the September 19th six-month rally after this whole disaster began. One day I heard there was going to be this huge protest, and they said 50,000 people were going to come and oppose nuclear power in Japan. I kind of was bewildered, because I I couldn't imagine 50,000 Japanese people getting together to oppose anything, just from living there. But I did make a note to go there on September 19th, and when I got there, yeah, 50,000 people turned out, and they said farewell to nuclear power and protect our children. You actually were in Japan for the period of time from the people not really being attuned to having a political response to the point where the movement that is continuing these days for the shutdown of the UI reactors, now that they've gone back online, all of that started back when you were there and you were able to follow it through to this milestone demonstration. 
Yes, um, I actually captured the smaller demonstrations in the beginning, and you can see actually in the film the demonstrations grow into this full-fledged 50,000-person protest, which has now become almost like going to be a revolution in Japan, hopefully. What brought you back to the United States? What made you decide that it was time to come back? I decided it was time to come back when I had a lot of concerns about the food. I mean, we initially, of course, knew that there was going to be problems, but I started to get radiophobia really bad about the food because they were still selling food from Fukushima in the supermarket. And I just said, I can't do this anymore. I need to take production elsewhere. At what point did you come back to the States? I came back early December of 2011. And what has been the journey of the footage that you took to its creation into the film that you've made? I came back to the country with a three-month rough cut, and I had to launch a Kickstarter campaign, if you don't know what that is, kickstarter.com, to raise the money for the post-production for the movie to get it into a 90-minute feature documentary. And how did that go? It was funded $5,000, and actually, even after it ended, we ended up getting an extra $1,000 and a spot to show the movie in Canada with a Fukushima conference on the anniversary date, March 11th, 2012. What was the response like when you showed it at this conference? A lot of people were shocked at what they saw. In what way shocked? What were they shocked about? They had no idea that any of that was going on. They... You know, they said, well, none of this has been on the news, it's been out of the media. We had no idea that people felt this way, these situations were going on at all. Chris, what was it like when you finally, for the first time, got to show the film in front of an audience? I had an overwhelming response from the Canadian media. I was featured on eight different outlets, including CBC Radio and CBC Television. The screening was packed to capacity. Everybody was shocked to some degree at what they saw. They didn't actually know all that was going on there because the media wasn't really reporting it over here. So in other words, what you provide in this film, 311 Surviving Japan, is a bridge between what was actually happening there in the first six months, starting just a few weeks after the tsunami and earthquake took place, all the way through to this first major demonstration. Information that we, of course, here, unless we were on YouTube and on Facebook, did not know anything about. Since that first screening, what has been happening with the film? After the first screening, it was a rough cut, so we had to raise more money to get it to the final cut. From the Kickstarters, I've had people who... That's how we got the first screening. So we had a second screening that just happened in Seattle. That one got another overwhelming response. It was on the local news, too, finally, the story about the movie. And I was really glad that they included the segment about Fukushima because I really wanted to get that back into the mass media. And that's part of the reason I made this movie is because people need to pay attention to what's going on. What are the steps you're taking to launch the film? And what do you hope, what do you envision as the future for this film? My hope is that it helps people first understand the disaster a lot more and that it's a serious, serious event. I mean, this is a potential end-of-the-world event that people are not really taking seriously at all. After that, I want to 
use any funds from that to help with radiation awareness projects in Japan and even here, because a lot of people here aren't really aware that the radiation travels and it traveled across over to the West Coast. And from there, across the west of the country and through rainouts, we have no idea where the pockets of the hotspot pockets are around the country. If you have a dream of what this film can accomplish, where it can go, who it can touch, what it can achieve in the world. What would that look like? We cannot sustain life on this planet if we continue to poison it. At what point do we decide that our health is more important than the economy? You know, we invented the economy, we can change that. Our health and our natural resources, though, we can't replace. And a greater awareness of that really, really, really needs to come about. And I think now is the time, and this incident is one that definitely we could learn that from. And your film is, of course, a major piece in the education of people in a medium that they are familiar with and that makes it easy for them to get the information in a condensed form. If people want to support you in the work that you're doing, where can they go to learn more about you and about the film, and how might they be able to help you? They can go to www.311survivingjapan.com. And those are the numbers 311. Yes. So number is 311survivingjapan.com. Right now, we are looking to launch the film and get it out there as big as possible. What would help you do that? Distribution and marketing. So if anybody is in the distribution or marketing field and are able to help Chris in any way, even if it's just as an information flow or to network him into others, go to www.311survivingjapan.com. Chris Nolan, thank you so much for all your efforts on our behalf. Thank you. He got his Kickstarter money, finished the film, and now Christopher Nolan's documentary, 311 Surviving Japan, will premiere on March 11th in North Hollywood, San Diego, San Francisco, and Laguna Niguel in California, Seattle, Washington, New York City, Chicago, Illinois, and Portland, Oregon. In Los Angeles, there will also be a special sneak preview on Saturday, March 9th. Tickets for this exclusive showing must be purchased by March 4th, and they may not last that long because they're going so quickly. All information about times, locations, and advanced ticket purchase is available at survivingjapanmovie.com. Make it an event. Get a Klieg light, roll out a red carpet, Hire a limo, invite your friends and family. Don't leave this movie in the echo chamber of those of us who already know and care about the issues it raises. Invite a friend or a neighbor to come with you. Spread the word. Let your local library know. Put it out on your email lists on Facebook and Twitter. Get your eco-friendly friends to share the word on their lists and then get them to come along with you. If there's no screening available in your area... We will have a link on the Nuclear Hot Seat website where you can learn how to book a screening of your own. Again, it is all searchable on survivingjapanmovie.com. And if anyone asks, is this by the same Christopher Nolan who directed all those Batman films? Just shrug and say, you don't know. The difference in their names is one letter if you're reading it in print and no difference if you're pronouncing it. So if a little bit of misdirection or confusion gets people motivated to come and see this film, what's wrong with that? 
The last Batman film actually did have a nuclear theme of sorts, so this would not be an illogical follow-up for that other Christopher Nolan. Whatever we can do that isn't illegal to move this movement forward, I suggest that we do it. A reminder that with the March 11 anniversary of Fukushima coming up, there will be activist actions around the country. In Times Square in New York on Monday, March 11, Hope for the Children of Fukushima will march from Times Square to the United Nations building with speeches, ceremony, and songs. In San Francisco, there's a nuclear whistleblower symposium on Saturday, March 9. Around the country, there will be actions of all kind, both over the weekend and on the actual anniversary on Monday. So Google your location and add nuclear activism to find out more. I will post what I can on nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. Here's today's final thought. Tis the season of pro-nukers rolling out their talking points, using their bought-and-paid-for media shills and PR assassins to clog the newspapers and broadcast with their disinformation. That's because we're getting close to the second anniversary of Fukushima, with its attendant roundup stories in the media. Forbes, in particular, has been ridiculous and heinous, running virtually back-to-back stories about how the radiation from cesium found in bluefish tuna isn't bad for us and might be good for the fish. And then a story on how nuclear industries will one day heat the hot water in our homes. Count me out of that one. What we need to do is find these stories in the media, online, and write comments underneath. If you want to do it in the analog version, make it a letter to the editor. Contradict the stories. Contradict the disinformation. Include links to Dr. Caldecott's upcoming symposium on the medical and ecological consequences of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Or nuclear hot seat. Just so people can go explore and get their own information. We cannot let the pro-nuke blather stand as uncontested truth. Of course, if a reporter gets it right, praise them, and also send praise to their editors, who may have had to put up with a lot of heat from management in order to get these stories on the air or in print. But realize that the media has a short attention span and almost no memory. A one-year anniversary of disaster is always good for a slew of stories. A two-year anniversary, less so. And the opposition to the truth of what we have to put out is by then very well organized and funded. So we've got a battle on our hands for column inches and airtime. After that, the media tends to ignore events until year five, then year 10. And usually after that, it's year 20. So this year, on the second anniversary of Fukushima, we need to take every advantage of the time to get our message out. Remember, the planet and genetic future that you save may be your own. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 26, 2013. Material for this podcast was gathered from enenews.com, Asia Europe Journal, Washington Post, Beyond Nuclear, Fairwinds Energy Education, and the ever-reliable Arnie Gunderson, Japan Times, World Nuclear News, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook Network. Special thanks to Lauren Steiner for her exclusive D.C. report from the Climate Change Rally. You can find all our podcasts posted on NuclearHotSeat.com. It's still easiest to just click on the blog tab and scroll down. We can also be found if you friend me and Nuclear Hot Seat, two different things, on Facebook 
And you can get the entire back library on iTunes Podcasts. We're at 89 right now and counting. Share us. Link to us. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So use us as the resource we are. And if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep.